sportsgrid.com. Betting insights and entertainment at your fingertips 24-7 as our team covers the most important topics in sports wagering. Real-time odds, predictive betting models, expert picks, and more. Want the edge? Then get on the grid. Sportsgrid.com. Oh, yeah, it's that time. Welcome in. Cover it with Teddy Covers here on Sirius XM, channel 159, The Sports Grid Radio Network. Over the course of the next hour, I'm going to sit down with Andy Isco, at VegasAndy711 on Twitter. Andy Isco, to break down the world of college football and college football betting here in November. We're in the stretch run in college football. We're going to talk about first-year head coaches, which teams are morphing down the stretch, we're going to ask him about the bubble burst theory for Alabama, Clemson, and Tennessee this week, if that's real or not real. And basically, we're going to talk about handicapping college football down the stretch. What matters the most and what doesn't, how it's different from early season slash mid-season handicapping. But before we get into any of this college football discussion, we've got to talk a little bit about Election Day. Most notably, Election Day in California, where there were two different Sports betting propositions that both got voted down. Prop 26 and Prop 27. Both went down in flames. Neither was close. We've got 30 states that are legal now, uh, plus District of Columbia, that allow sports betting. There are still 20 states that have yet to implement any kind of legalized, regulated sports betting. For the majority of those states, we expect it to happen at some point in the not-too-distant future. It's around the corner. There are bills being bandied about. But the situation in California is very complicated, all right, because there are many vested interests that are already carving out pieces for themselves of the California potential sports betting markets. You have the Native American casinos. You have the horse tracks. You have the card rooms. You have the state lottery. You have all kinds of different legal gambling in California. But when you're talking about, and this was a huge, huge, uh, you know, the, the, the for Prop 26 and Prop 27, between them, there was $600 million raised <laughs> to expand the gambling and capture a piece uh, of the sports betting marketplace, but voters, again, they didn't just vote it down. They voted them both down, and they voted them both down by margin. So we say to ourselves, as people that bet on sports, I'm confident that if you're listening, you're someone that's interested in betting on sports. How the heck does this happen? How do these get voted down like that? It's simple. Well, it's not simple. It's complicated, but the rationale behind it is fairly simple. Number one, you have vested interests in the state competing against one another. You know, Prop 26 would have allowed casinos and the state's four major horse tracks to offer sports betting in person only. All right. That was bankrolled by a coalition of Native American tribes. And it would also have allowed more games in the Native American casinos, roulette and dice games at the casinos. And of course, there would be a 10% tax. That's a test to that, to allow uh, the state to get their fair share of funds. That in-person sports betting is not the modern way. Let's just put it that way. It wasn't a great proposition. It was a proposition put forth by 
people who wanted to make money off it. <laughs> and it didn't pass. Prop 27 would have allowed the online slash mobile sports betting for adults. And it was backed by DraftKings and BetMGM and FanDuel uh, and many uh, other national sports betting operators. And they talked about the money, the tax revenues that are going to come to help the homeless and help the mentally in and help the uh, poor tribes that haven't uh, been enriched uh, by the casinos. But on the Prop 27 campaign, <laughs> there was a lot of anti-betting, uh, anti-legalized betting um, momentum. And that's not even the right word. Uh, but there was a lot of anti-betting momentum because they were trying to do something with the bill that wasn't real. They're like, oh, this is a help the homeless bill. We were going to send this money to help the homeless, and it wasn't. It was a sports betting bill. And again, each of the bills, the two competing bills that were, uh, or the props, because they're not bills in the legislature. These are props that voters have to vote on. And when you're talking about California props, that's another issue worth noting. You know, Nevada, we had three. <laughs> For California, it was props 26 and 27. When you're going through your ballot and you have 27 props, I don't even know how many they had. That's the way. <laughs> there's always a lot of props on the California ballot. Maybe they're not getting the airtime uh, that they're supposed to. Maybe they're not getting uh, the people not making it that, that far down on the ballot. I mean, there's a lot of reasons behind it. One reason that it is not behind the failure of the two props in California to legalize and regulate sports betting is because, is not <laughs> because they don't want legalized, regulated sports betting in California. They just haven't been able to put it together yet. One would expect at some point in the not-too-distant future, and now we're probably looking at 2024 before it's realistic, but in the not-too-distant future, we would expect to see a better written prop something that gets everyone together behind a single sports betting entity, that will have a chance to pass and will likely pass somewhere down the line. In the meantime, all you guys from California, keep coming here in Nevada. We love it. Keep betting here in Sin City. It helps our handle. It helps our tax revenue. And someday, maybe you'll be able to join us. When we come back, Andy Isco and College Football Talk. Cover it continues. SportsGrid.com. Betting insights and entertainment at your fingertips 24-7 as our team covers the most important topics in sports wagering. Real-time odds, predictive betting models, expert picks, and more. Want the edge? Then get on the grid. SportsGrid.com. I used to do a radio show called The Stardust Line on Saturday nights here in Las Vegas, and it was broadcast on KDON, which was a... Uh, a 50,000-watt powerhouse. You could hear it all along the West Coast. I think 13 states along the West Coast. And one of my co-hosts for that show is today's guest. His name is Andy Isco. And Andy, back then you had the best nickname because it suited you perfectly. They call me Teddy Covers. And yeah, uh, I was thought that good nickname. I have no complaints with Teddy Covers. But Andy Isco... I think John Kelly was the one who nicknamed you The Good Andy. And for me, it stuck all these years. The Good Andy, welcome to Cover It with Teddy Covers. How are you today? 
I appreciate that, although I'm sure John knows many, many people with the name Andy who are also good. <laughs> That's true. But one thing I could say about you, Andy Isco, I've known you again for more than 20 years now uh, here in Las Vegas. I consider you a friend. I'm glad to have you on the program. But one thing I can say about you is that you're not like, there are people out there that don't like me. All right. Sometimes I'm grumpy. Sometimes I'm a jerk. Happens. You're the good Andy, man. I I don't think I've I don't think I've ever seen you swear. I don't think I've ever seen you mad at anyone. How do you keep your cool? I don't know. Maybe you just maybe I just get immune to things. Uh, you know, I'm sure there are people who dislike me. I don't even know if the word hate would be appropriate, but I just haven't met any of them, fortunately. But then again, I keep myself sort of isolated and I just go about my business. And you know, when you've been doing the football handicapping and betting as long as uh, both you and I have been doing, you realize that there are going to be some ups and downs. And as much as you must, you hate those bad beats, uh, you also have to remember some of those fortunate covers that you've had. Now they normally don't balance out as we've talked about before because normally if you're a good handicapper and better you're going to be on the right side i'll put that in quotes of games that turn out uh the wrong way then you are going to be on the wrong side on games you get fortunate and cover and when you learn to do that you try to keep your emotions uh in check and that's what i've been able to do for uh, for pretty much uh, uh well the the past couple of decades yeah, but, I mean, when I came out here, I moved out here in 98, and you were already a legend in this space. You were doing it for more than a decade uh, before I got started. And I'm not just talking about betting. I'm talking about walking around life in general. You're someone that walks around in life. I'm a cynic. I'm a critic. You're someone that walks around in life, and you're like, this is good. That's good. I'm enjoying this. <laughs> uh, it's a mentality that I envy and admire, not one that I share. Well, let me put it this way. I can be a cynic and a critic. However, as I live alone, since I'm a single, uh, the, the walls might give you a different impression. <laughs> no doubt. And, of course, you know, I'm married with child, and uh, my wife wishes I was less of a cynic. <laughs> I'm sure you've got to sure. get your own room, lock yourself into it, turn the music up loud, and scream as much as you want. Yeah, uh, okay. Well, nope, we're not going to do that over the course of this show. We're going to talk about some college football. And I want to ask you real simple. What team or teams have you made the most money betting on in college football this year? And what team have you made the most money betting against? Like, I had Boston College circled at the beginning of the year. I want to bet against this team. That has served me well so far uh, this season. Um, do you have a team like that that you've been looking to bet against or looking to bet on? Or well, both I have a one that stands of um, and actually, they're in the same conference. I was on Kansas from the beginning of the year, rode them through their streak, sort of stayed away from a couple of their games recently. But And part of it was based upon one of the things that we may be touching upon a little bit later. I have a great deal of admiration and respect for Lance Leopold, the uh, coach who came over from Buffalo after taking really uh, – for lack of a better frame, a rather irrelevant program and made them into a powerhouse on the Mac for several years. And in the uh, couple of seasons that he's left, we've seen the uh, quality of that program decline. And often you can say, hey, what's in common with Buffalo's decline and Kansas City's rise and Kansas's rise? And that's the coach. You know, this is only this was only his past uh, second full year or full year of recruiting. He took the job, I think, in 20. 
21, if I recall correctly, uh, after the uh, recruiting process had already uh, gotten underway. So he didn't really have uh, familiarity uh, with uh, the recruits at that time that he has now, as well as the uh, uh, the environment in the Big 12, getting to getting his opportunity to run through the pro- the teams last year. Uh, the other team that I've had uh, not much success uh, as I've been betting against another team that I happen to like very much, and that's TCU, because I've always liked uh, Sonny Dykes as a coach, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But I've felt that, especially over the last few weeks, uh, things were starting to catch up with TCU, the way that they had to come from behind in a number of their games, a couple of fortunate covers when I was on the other side, and that's just a team that, uh, that I continued uh, to bet against, and I felt like I had the right side for the majority of that game, but not at the end of the game, and there have been a couple of games that they had some rather unusual endings that uh, that turned a, a winner into a loser, so uh, I would say that's probably been, you might say, the team that I've, I've done the, the most poorly with, but also the most frustrating team, and I think this week they're probably not going to cover because I'm going to be on them against Texas. <laughs> yeah, sure, and of course, I mean, if you didn't see the ending, who's it? Who, who did, uh, was it? The West Virginia? Yeah, it was TCU West Virginia. Yes. Where TCU literally had no, they were not going to cover the points, but all they were trying to do was run out the clock, and they might have kicked a field goal on fourth down to go up six in a game where they were laying seven, seven and a half. But the defender jumped off sides. The veteran senior quarterback realized he had a free play. And he chucked the ball up for the end zone, and the kid came down with it and ended up winning by 10 in a and, game and that had absolutely recall, no business covering. It, wasn't that like a fourth and two so that if they just had the offside penalty, they would have gotten the first down and run out yes. the last 30 seconds? Correct. They would have just run out the clock. It was yeah, so a that, pretty bad That was a, a frustrating uh, finish to a game. And, of course, I think, if I recall correctly, the West Virginia came, uh, game came after they had overcome that uh, big deficit to, what was it, Kansas State uh, the previous week. And before that, uh, they had uh, uh, come from behind in that overtime game, I think, to win uh, at Oklahoma State. So uh, it had been, it's been frustrating uh, going against TCU. I, I can only be disappointed in the results of the game, but not disappointed in the handicap I had on the game. Sure, and that's Andy, someone who absolutely posts after the games are over. You know, I used to call it my postmortem. Um, I still call it my postmortem, but I don't talk about it as much. As, <laughs> I used to talk about it a lot. But where you go through the games, look at your handicap, reassess whether it was a good handicap or a bad handicap. Sometimes when you do the postmortem, you're like, yeah, I'd make that bet again. Other times you're like, maybe next time I'll uh, look for something different. A um, couple minutes for the break, uh, Andy. I want to get this in right here, right now. College football down the stretch. What matters? What doesn't? How is it different from early season slash midseason capping? Well, teams, uh, first of all, in September, we don't know a lot about these teams. They're still trying to display their identity. Uh, and so we're going on a lot of the preseason information, maybe some past history. Plus, they're also playing uh, the majority, if not all, of their non-conference games at the start of the season. So we're getting to see them often when they go up against, say, uh, the, uh, uh, the one FCS team that they may play each year. They're stepping down in class. Let's see if they struggle with those teams uh, or if they uh, have, as, as often expected, 
rather easy double-digit victories. Once you get into this time of the year, you've played more than half of your conference schedule. You've played about three-quarters to, to uh, uh, four-fifths of your regular season schedule, and you have a pretty good identity of the uh, idea of the strengths and the weaknesses. And I'll take a look, for example, that uh, uh, I think it's related to one of your upcoming uh, questions that we're going to go over. Uh, as far as teams that are playing much better now than they did at the start of the season and teams that haven't been able to maintain the momentum that they showed early, and all of a sudden you start to see them struggling down the stretch. And uh, if you're looking at full-season numbers, the teams may appear better than they are currently or worse than they have currently, and that's one of the things I take into account when I'm looking at a game. I tend to, at this point of the year to look more at recent form than full-season results. Exactly. The full-season stats at this stage of this campaign can often send you pointing in the wrong direction. One of the things I look for most at this time of year is finding teams playing at a different level now, good or bad, compared to where they were earlier in the campaign. We're just getting started with Andy Isco. Cover It with Teddy Covers continues after this. SportsGrid.com. Betting insights and entertainment at your fingertips 24-7 as our team covers the most important topics in sports wagering. Real-time odds, predictive betting models, expert picks, and more. Want the edge? Then get on the grid. SportsGrid.com. Welcome back. Cover it with Teddy Covers here on SiriusXM Channel 159, the SportsGrid Radio Network. Our guest today, of course, is Andy Isco, a guy who I was doing radio with 20 years ago at the Stardust Racing Sportsbook here uh, in uh, fabulous, sunny Las Vegas, Nevada. So, a guy who I've known a while, who's been around the block once or twice. Andy, we talked earlier about what teams you made the most money betting on and which teams have you had a little bit of frustration with. You wanted to talk about teams that you can't win betting on or betting against. Anyone stand out in that regard? Because... I find, like, Northwestern's been that team for me this year. All right? I can't get Northwestern right. I've lost money betting on them. I've lost money betting against them. I've lost money with every opinion I've had about Northwestern. I've given it on the show. I hate the Northwestern Wildcats this year. And at this age of the campaign, it's easy for a team like Northwestern, in, in my book. I'm just not playing their games. They're right down the stretch. They're not going bowling. If this is a team that was going to go to a bowl game, I'd re-look at them come bowl time. But for a team, for me at least, that I can't get a read on, hey, it's mid-November. There's plenty of other teams. Northwestern, whatever game they're in, likely to be a pass for me moving forward. Do you have a team like that? Yeah, but I, I want to just follow up what we were talking about uh, down the stretch handicapping because uh, when you sent me your notes, it was sort of broken into two questions. And uh, one of the uh, parts that we didn't address before is how much it's different from early season to midseason handicapping. And that is down the stretch, A, the lines are tighter because we do have all the history. Plus, and this is important, really, it starts from around maybe four or five games into the season. There's more conflicting information that supports and goes against each team. You don't have that early. So you basically form your decision and you feel committed to it later in the year. And it occurs all the time, but especially later in the year. There are more reasons to play on a team, but there are also reasons to play against that team. Now, as far as the specific question, the team that I haven't had a, a, a good read on uh, is a team that had much higher expectations this year than it has been the reality. And that's uh, Miami of Florida. Uh, this is a team that was expected to contend for one of the uh, 
spots uh, uh, high in the uh, ACC this year. Uh, and they've been absolutely miserable. I think they have only one point spread cover this year, and that may have been that first game against Bethune-Cookman yes. that they uh, that they really pummeled one of those weaker uh, FCS teams. And so I was initially looking to play on Miami because they had a talent advantage against many of the teams that they were facing, and yet uh, they did not perform well. They'd win games, but they wouldn't cover, and sometimes they'd lose games, including uh, when favored. And so I've stayed away from betting on them at the same time. Time, it's a team I'm reluctant to bet against because they often do have that uh, talent advantage, but they've not played up to their potential. So it's a team that probably around uh, the third week of October, I just said, I'm dispensing with playing honor against Miami the rest of the year because they're going to have talent advantages over most of the teams they play, but they have so underachieved that you wouldn't feel comfortable playing them. It's almost like the stage that we're at right now in the NFL with the Green Bay Packers. Sure. But the Miami, to me, has been a great team because they were uh, something that <laughs> there's only one way of looking at Miami all year, <laughs> and that's against them. And as you mentioned, they covered the open. They haven't covered since. I want to ask you, when we're talking about the Miami Hurricanes, I have to ask you about Mario Cristobal. This is a coach who, at his first head coaching job at Florida International, he had a little bit of success early, and then he crashed and burned. You know, he went 8-14 and 14 in his last two years. He got fired from FIU. But then he got hired as a Nick Saban assistant. And we get hired as a Nick Saban assistant. Next thing you know, boom, you're on Willie Taggart's staff at Oregon. And next thing you know, you're the Oregon head coach. And next thing you know, Miami's trying to buy you, know, buy you from Oregon. He didn't do well at Oregon. He didn't do well at FIU. And this situation in Miami, I can't call it anything than an abject disaster. All right. Why does this guy keep getting jobs? And, oh, he has a 10-year, $80 million contract. What is Miami going to do with him? Yeah, it's a difficult situation, and the first thought that comes to mind from the situations that you described, which are all entirely accurate, he's a much better recruiter than he is a football coach because he inherited programs uh, that, uh, uh, that, uh, that had talent when he took over, especially up at Oregon, and he didn't perform nearly as well, but yet the talent step, uh, kept uh, being able to be recruited. So he may be, you know, he may be someone who's great as an assistant coach or as a recruiter, maybe like a, like a North Turner in the NFL was a great offensive coordinator, but failed when he was elevated to the head coach position, and that may be the situation with Mario Cristobal. Now, the Hurricanes do have uh, that uh, heavy uh, contract with him, and of course, he's an alumnus and a former player uh, at Miami, former assistant coach there, uh, so it may be very difficult to uh, get rid of him, and I guess it comes down to uh, how much the alumni are willing to kick in to try and turn things over to a different coach. Well, I mean, they're already paying, they're still paying Manny Diaz. I think they're, yeah. who, who, uh, I feel I feel like they're still paying two or three other coaches as well <laughs> at Miami uh, program. Again, their last point spread cover came on opening day. If I'm playing a Miami game, I'm betting against them. See, and, and that's what I normally would look to be doing. But I, again, take a look at the talent and see that it's consistently underperforming. At what point will all of a sudden the, the talent come together? I suppose if I were to play them the rest of the way, I, one school of thought would say, you know, they're, they played so poorly, they've underachieved that at some point the point spread will catch up and there'll be a point spread cover. But we've been saying that for six or seven weeks right now. Uh, I'm not, at this point, I'm beyond saying this is the week it's going to happen. Yeah, I don't blame you. And, of course, Georgia Tech, who they're facing today, uh, we're talking about a real Tech's team that's won three of their last five, that rallied from double digits behind on the road last week to win a game and cover despite throwing a pick six in the second half of that ballgame, which is not an easy thing for a team like Georgia Tech to overcome. 
So I'm going to talk about the bubble burst theory in a few minutes. We're going to talk about Alabama, Clemson, and Tennessee, all of whom lost last week. But right now, I want to stay on the morphing teams theme. Teams whose season-long stats are going to lie. Teams who have gotten better or gotten worse since September. Because that's everything that I look for in November college football. I don't, the, the number one thing that I want is a team that maybe wasn't good early that is playing a whole lot better now or a team that was good early that isn't playing very well right now. Teams whose season-long stats are lying. I call them morphing teams. Is that what you look for at this time of the year? Are there any teams that stand out to you? Actually, there are a few teams, and they're actually uh, related to the uh, bubble burst theory, which is going against uh, an undefeated team that has just lost its first game of the season once we get deep into the season, which often is defined as uh, early November or later. And uh, we've got three of those teams this week. Well, the exception, Alabama's not uh, lost their first game, but they basically played themselves uh, out of any possibility of uh, making the college football playoffs, which was a bubble burst theory because they're so used to uh, being in the uh, college football playoffs. So we're talking basically, in addition to uh, Alabama, we're talking Clemson and uh, uh, Tennessee. And it's an example of, you, you, I, I often look to go against such teams, but I want to have a team that uh, that is playing good football at the time they're going against the team that had their first loss of the season. And you take a look, for example, at Clemson. They lost badly last week at Notre Dame, and uh, since the start of the season, this has not been the typical Clemson team. They struggled a lot more on both sides of the football uh, as opposed to what they were doing the last few years. And now they're facing a Louisville team this week that is playing its best football of the season. They started loss-win, loss-win, loss, so they were 2-3. and three. They've now won four straight games, two as small underdogs, two as a, as a small to medium favorite, and they're playing extremely well. They beat a very good Waste Forest team on that uh, bizarre third quarter. They beat a very decent to Pittsburgh team the week before that. Now, three the last three of those wins by Louisville were at home, so they are going on the road. But this team is playing with great confidence. They're getting a touchdown uh, tomorrow, uh, in, in the game against uh, uh, Clemson. So uh, Louisville is a team that I would be looking to play on uh, irrespective of whether Clemson was coming off of a loss. I think coming off of that loss just makes it a little bit more attractive to feel comfortable playing Louisville. In the situation with Tennessee coming off of their first loss of the season, and it's unlikely uh, that uh, they will be playing in the uh, SEC title game because I don't think Georgia will lose any more of their games, and they're, of course, unbeaten. Uh, and uh, unlike a team like Alabama, which theoretically, although unlikely, could play, even even with a win in the SEC championship game, Alabama would still have two losses. But uh, Tennessee's chances of making the playoffs are pretty much – they're very slim. It depends upon – a lot of things like TCU, for example, but they are playing a Missouri team that has played extremely well. Now, their record, they just have uh, uh, four wins and five losses, but only one really bad loss this year, and that was 40-12 to in Week 2 at Kansas State. Uh, other losses, uh, they had a, a three-point loss at Auburn, a four-point loss at home to Georgia, where Georgia had to come from behind, a seven-point loss at, uh, uh, at Florida, and then last week's four-point loss at home to Kentucky. They're getting three touchdowns 
touchdowns this week against uh, against Tennessee. I think Tennessee does enough to win, but there's nothing to say that Missouri won't play a very competitive game. You know, they're looking to get a couple of more wins, become bowl eligible, which would be nice progress. So, sort of like putting those two questions together, uh, Missouri is a team that I would look to bet on. If Missouri were not playing well, they were four and five, let's say, and had some ugly losses there, I might just pass. Even though the first inclination in the in the situation to describe the bubble burst is to look at the underdog. Are you worried at all that like uh, Missouri against Kansas, oh, sorry, Missouri uh, against Tennessee in the last meeting between these two teams last year gave up 62 points at home? Uh, that was last year. This is a team that uh, has improved significantly defensively this year. Other than the 40 points that they gave up to Kansas State, they've not given up more than 26 points uh, in in any game. So, you know, if they uh, uh, if they if they give up 26 to Tennessee, they only have to score like two points to cover uh, or four points to cover the spread. If Missouri can score 17 points, uh, we'll have to see just how dejected Tennessee is uh, when they come out to play. Yes, I'm concerned, but the play is also on one of those teams that. Has has significantly from the start of the season, and Missouri, as does Louisville, meet those uh, uh, those criteria. And of course, the sharp money coming for the Tigers as we speak. Nothing but Missouri money in the betting markets. Coverage continues after this. SportsGrid.com. Betting insights and entertainment at your fingertips 24-7 as our team covers the most important topics in sports wagering. Real-time odds, predictive betting models, expert picks, and more. Want the edge? Then get on the grid. SportsGrid.com. Don't miss anything from our programming. Follow us on Twitter. At SportsGrid. At SportsGrid Radio. At SportsGrid TV to stay informed all day long with clips, breaking news, updates, and pretty much everything else. Again, at SportsGrid, at SportsGrid Radio, at SportsGrid TV on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter at Teddy underscore covers. And you can follow our guest today, the good Andy, Andy Isco, at VegasAndy711. Again, at VegasAndy711. Mr. Isco, before the break, we were talking about some of the bubble burst teams. Alabama, Clemson, Tennessee. I want to talk about the Crimson Tide a little bit more right here. Because from a mainstream narrative to the actual results, I'm scratching my head. about Everyone's like, this is the worst season Alabama's had in 20 years. It's like Alabama lost one game on a field goal with zeros on the scoreboard. They lost another game on a two-point conversion with zeros on the scoreboard. Alabama's not getting blown out. Alabama's lost two coin flips. And it's like, the mark's like, well, Nick Saban doesn't have it anymore. <laughs> I was like, are the expectations for the Crimson Tide so unrealistic at this stage that when they suffer two losses, both by a combined four points, that all of a sudden this is a down year for the program? Well, I, I think when you're a program like Alabama and you're used to playing for national championships and certainly you're used to uh, going through seasons unbeaten, uh, having two losses in a season uh, is uh, could be, be a wonderful season for 95% of the other teams in college football, but not for Alabama, especially when you consider the fact that they struggled in that, uh, uh, in that win over Texas early in the season and then they held on against Texas A&M. So Al- Alabama could as easily be unbeaten 
beaten after the, you know with the Tennessee and LSU losses as they could have four losses at this point. So this is uh, you know a team that was used to winning by margins of 30 points or more on a regular basis. So it, it has to be taken within context. Alabama's season is a season that virtually every team in college football would be pleased to have. But if you're Alabama and the expectations are as high as they've been for more than the decade that uh, Nick Saban has been there, yeah, it's a disappointing season. And the surprising part especially has been uh, the defense, which was considered coming into the season uh, to be uh, one of the strongest uh, defenses that Alabama's had. And really, when you look at their results, there are four games this year where they gave up seven points or less, albeit you know Utah State they shut out, seven to UL Monroe, three to Vanderbilt, uh, which could be understandable. Maybe the six points they allowed to Mississippi State is a little bit uh, uh, less uh, understandable because Mississippi State does have a good offense. But again, it also shows that this is a good uh, Alabama defense, but not up to the standards of years past. Sure, but when you talk about a team that has, again, two losses by a combined four points, and the entire mainstream media says, oh, what a down year for Alabama. It's like, settle down, Beavis. Alabama's just fine. And, of course, we are talking about a program that hasn't lost more than two games in a single season in any of the last ten years. So we'll but see how again, they do down the stretch. It's, it's, it's the context. As I said, 95% of teams at, uh, at this level would be, would be thrilled with this season. But when the expectations are as high as they are for Alabama, which is understandable based upon what they've accomplished over the past decade, it's disappointment, but I would put the word disappointment in quotes. Yeah. Uh, so when Saban retires, will there be another program in the next 20 years that has success that Alabama's had for the last 15 it's uh, it's hard to uh, see it uh, these days, with uh, especially now with transfer portals, where uh, some underclassmen can get a bit impatient if they're not given starting opportunities. Uh, the money being thrown at coaches to move from one program to another, uh, you know, he's uh, one of a one of a, a fading breed. Nick Saban staying at a program as long as he has, he's kind of like the uh, 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 you know the Jim Beheim of college basketball. Uh, you're not going to see that kind of longevity, I think, at least for another generation or so depending upon how, you know, how things change between now and that next generation. It's hard to, it's hard to see anyone right now who could have that kind of, uh, of longevity simply because if you've had a good – how long will uh, Leopold last at Kansas? You know, if he follows this year, and maybe he'll be gone after this year with a bigger job, that the, the, the alumni are more impatient today than they were, say, 20 years ago. Sure. This is all I'm going to say for Alabama fans. Enjoy it now. Because <laughs> it ain't. Uh, if you look, if you project what the next 20 years look like for Alabama, I doubt that they'll match the success of the last 20 years. We were talking about morphing teams a few moments ago, Andy, and I wanted to ask you if there were any other teams that stand out to you in that regard. Uh, teams morphing in the positive direction, teams morphing in a negative direction, teams we can make money with in theory right now. Well, again, we talked about Miami of Florida, and they've uh, gone in the opposite direction since the opening week of the season. But uh, I concentrate more on teams that I'm looking to play on uh, rather than uh, than against. And so I take a look at a team like North Texas in Conference USA. Uh, they started the season two and three. Uh, since then, they've won four out of five, uh, uh, two of the wins again as underdogs. But more importantly, they've covered uh, six games in a row as they uh, uh, go into uh, Alabama-Birmingham, which is a 
team that is down from a couple of years ago, and they're getting, I think, five or six points right now. Uh, so North Texas is a team that I'm considering for play. Western Kentucky is another team. They've won three out of four also in the Conference USA, and they've covered. Uh, uh, they've actually covered uh, uh, seven of their last nine. Uh, they had a big win last week against Charlotte, which was tough coming off of a surprising win after their coaching change. Uh, they're playing a Rice team that is a capable team, but I'm not quite sure if they'll be able to trade points with Western Kentucky. I think the line is about 13. So that's another team that I'm considering. So Western Kentucky, a favorite that I'm considering that's in good current form. North Texas, an underdog that I'm considering that's in very good current form. And Iowa State's a team that stands out to me. And again, it's not like we've seen a big turnaround from Iowa State, but they underachieved for extended stretches in October. Last week, the first good offensive performance they've had basically in two months. I wouldn't be surprised if the Cyclones are money winners over the fast last few weeks. Uh, I'm just a little bit concerned because they're going against a good team that is in poor form, and it's basically a pick 'em game at Oklahoma State. So I'm looking at that one. Uh, I'm a, I go back and forth on that one. I'm more inclined to take uh, Oklahoma State in this one than if they were, say, a three-point favorite, and you'd be grabbing a field goal with Iowa State. So we're getting down the stretch in college football. Are there any patterns for first-year head coaches compared to veteran coaches when it comes to late-season improvements or declines? Do you expect to see the first-year head coaches, these teams, get better as November rolls around? Or is that first-year head coach deal, guess what? When November rolls around, half the guys are transferring out of town, (laughs) uh, and it's going to be an ugly end of the campaign as opposed to a, a good one. So talk to me about how you approach first-year head coaches down the stretch and anyone that stands out to you in that regard. Yeah, I'm not sure that I really uh, devote a great amount of time to looking at first-year head coaches down uh, in a stretch of a season as much as I am looking at their performance, performance rather throughout the entirety of the season. You know, the old adage is that uh, when you look in college football, that a team shows you know great improvement between game one and game two, uh, whether it's a a new coach or an existing coach because they've had one game to make adjustments. Well, same thing with first-year coaches; they should continue to show at least the good ones continue to show progress. I use the example of, uh, uh, of Lance Leopold at Kansas. Uh, they were a little bit more competitive last year, but the difference between last year and this year uh, can almost be looked at you know, between game one and game two and season one and season two. One coach that I have been impressed with this year, it's uh, uh, the guy who's coaching the team I went against a lot, and that's uh, Sonny Dykes at TCU. He had already established himself as a uh, solid head coach uh, at uh, Louisiana Tech. I think he had a little bit of success at Cal before going to SMU, from which he departed for uh, TCU after uh, uh, last season. And he took over a team that had enjoyed, uh, for most of his coaching tenure, great success under Jerry Patterson, and the program had slipped a little bit. And uh, Dykes came in and really had this team playing on all cylinders from the very start. I remember going against them in that game against uh, SMU, and it was, again, I think it was one of those come-from-behind wins, although they, I think they led comfortably in the second half, or at least led most of the second half. So that's one coach, but that's an experienced coach. As far as guys getting their first head coaching assignment, uh, I haven't uh, really looked into how those teams uh, have fared unless they were extremely good teams in that first year. I'd continue to ride that coach. So, Andy, we've got just a couple of minutes left. And, and real quick, I want to talk about stats here before we get into uh, bettable opinions uh, for today's college football uh, Saturday card. 
I'm gonna ask, are you a stat handicapper in college football? And if you do use statistical uh, statistical approach, what statistics do you look for that matter for picking winners in college football? Uh, yeah, I'm very much a statistical handicapper. You know, handicapping is both an art and a science. Uh, the science of handicapping are the numbers, are the statistics. The art is the application. How do you use those stats? And I'm not talking about analytics, because I have uh, certainly some strong thoughts on analytics that uh, uh, could be discussed at some other time. Although I use them, I use them, I think, in a way that's different than most coaches use them, for example. But looking at the stats that I like, I like to use yards per play as opposed to yards per game, because yards per play is more indicative of what teams do when they're actually running plays and when they're defending plays. And you may, not, you may have, for example, let's say you get a team that has two pick sixes in the second quarter. Well, those are two possessions that they don't get to run their offense. So, yeah, they're probably not going to have as much in total yards gained, for example, as their opponent will uh, over the course of that game. So I look at yards per play. I also like teams that tend to avoid turning the football over, which is different than uh, looking at turnover margin. Uh, I like teams that don't give the other team added possessions, which, which obviously is what happens when you turn the football over. Uh, passing stats, I've never been uh, comfortable with yards per attempt, because that includes incompletions as opposed to completions. I prefer to look at yards per completion. When a pass is completed, what is the average length that that pass goes for, whether it be a direct pass that uh, the guy gets tackled immediately or there are yards after catch. And you know, If you look at the difference between yards per completion and yards per attempt, you will get different impressions on how effective a passing game is. So I like to look for teams that uh, have good yards per completion on offense and have strong yards per completion uh, defense without looking at all, really, uh, at the yards per attempt. Because to me, it's sort of – I mean, you talk about apples and oranges, that's apples and oranges. It, it, it mixes completions and incompletions. Andy Isco telling us what stats he uses for his college football handicapping. Andy, we've got about a minute left. I want a bettable opinion from you, and I want you to promote yourself. Tell folks where they can find you. Okay, I'm going to look at a game that does have a very heavy favorite, and it uh, falls into one of the, uh, I don't have to call them systems, or one of the situations or characteristics that I like to follow. And that's a college football team that averages uh, over 200 yards, both running and passing, when facing a team that allows an average of over 200 yards running and passing. And normally such a team with the, with the positives would be a big favorite, and that's the situation here as UCLA is uh, uh, hosting Arizona. They're favored by 19-19.5. With that kind of profile, UCLA uh, could score on almost every possession if these teams play their typical games, because that's how strong their offense is, and that's how weak their defense is. Now, there are two concerns... Two concerns that I do have, and that's Arizona has been playing better offensively, and UCLA has USC up next week. So, Andy likes UCLA minus the 19.5 slash minus 20 against Arizona. i got 10 seconds left for you, Andy. Promote yourself quickly. <laughs> TheLogicalApproach.com is the website. Weekly statistics for college and pro football, including some of the ones I've discussed just a few moments ago with yards, although yards per player are not included. Yards per game are. Great stuff from Andy Isco. Coverage continues. Yeah. SportsGrid.com. Betting insights and entertainment at your fingertips 24-7 as our team covers the most important topics in sports wagering. Real-time odds, predictive betting models, expert picks, and more. Want the edge? Then get on the grid. SportsGrid.com. We're here in the home 
home stretch of Cover It with Teddy Cover Series XM Channel 159. Listen, if you missed any portion of today's program, you want to go back and hear what Andy was saying at the beginning, what I talked about in my open, if you want to check out tomorrow's college football show, or NFL show, I should say, you want to check out last week's college football show, or anything from the archives, we've got years of shows in the archives, download the podcast version of Cover It with Teddy Covers. Consume at your convenience. Wherever you download your podcasts, every major podcast outlet, I think it's on all the minor podcast outlets, just search Cover It. Cover It with Teddy Covers. Download and consume at your convenience. Let's talk a little college football for today. 4 o'clock Eastern, 1 p.m. here on the left coast, Florida and South Carolina. Total in this game still sitting at 59. I don't know how these teams are getting to 59. Shane Rattler is not moving the football against good defenses. He really isn't. If you watched him play, it's a limited South Carolina offense when they face better defensive teams. That Gamecocks defense has been lights out. Remember, the season-long numbers are still aligned. They gave up 44 points to Arkansas and 48 points to Georgia back in September. Two ugly early season defeats. Since that time, they've allowed 20, 10, 13, 24, 23, and 27 in their last six ballgames, four of them against SEC foes. So the season-long stats for South Carolina defensively are lying. Their quarterback, I don't trust to move the football against a good defense. And one thing Florida isn't doing right now, the Gators are not turning the ball over. Zero turnovers in the last three ballgames. So we're not seeing the good field position against them, the big play, uh, you know, interception return, fumble return, whatever it is. Just not happening. The cheap scores aren't going to be there for Florida, South Carolina. I think 59 is high. I think 58 is high. The Sharp Book's already at 58 on this one. Look for the Cox and the Gators to stay under the total. There's your bettable opinion for today. I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to hang out with me here on the Sports Grid Radio Network. Again, download the podcast version, enjoy the games, and good luck all weekend.